pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God,
Okay, last week we covered the opening of the first three seals. Again, just really quickly, there's a scroll. It has seven, we think, wax-type seals on it, literally or figuratively, that John has seen. It is taken by the Lamb of God from the hand of the one standing, sitting on the throne. And the first seal is open. That's the content of chapter 6. And that, uh, and we talked all about that, and I'm going to cover a little bit about that because it all fits together. That was the white horse. The first four seals release a horse, and it's the white horse that first came forth. The second seal is open, and a red horse is released. The third seal is open. A black horse is released, and all the things associated with them, and we covered that at length last week. Uh, so let's cover the contents of the fourth seal. There are seven, of, as I said. And then I will present this, the thing that came to me last Sunday after we talked about this. And it's something that may hold water uh, on the four horsemen. It seems to work with the rest of Scripture. And, uh, but first, let's talk about the fourth seal and the fourth horse, which I've wrongly called the gray horse. Um, it says at verse 7 of chapter 6, And when he, that's the lamb, had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast, that's the eagle, flying eagle, it says, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death. And hell followed with him. The power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth, to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Now, of course, you know, in the four views of Revelation, the idealist view, the historicist view, the preterist view, and the futurist view, all have different views about when these things are going to be played out. Let's go back to verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. That living creature, as I said, is the flying eagle. The, the first one was like a lion. The second one was like uh, an ox. The third one had the face of a man. And this fourth one was a flying eagle. I don't want to create something that isn't there, but it seems like as each of those beasts have opened each of those seals, there has been a correlation between what they were, the beasts, represented the lion was the, was the white horse, and then the ox, which is in scriptures used to push and divide, was the red horse, meaning war, and the black horse was the one that had the face of a man, and we talked about that. Well, this fourth one, it seems like the e flying eagle, this one is death is riding on this, what I said was a gray horse, and it seems like the eagle's view has a view of who's to die and who's to live. And, and, and there may be nothing to that, but I, I just try to understand why are, is this specific creature living under the throne of God the one that calls John to open up that certain seal? Maybe something to it, may not. So John says, and I looked, the, the flying eagle says, hey, come and see. All of them, the animals said, come and see. And John says, and I looked. And behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And the power was given unto them over a fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with beasts of the earth. Now, 
I thought that this was a gray horse, symbolic of death, and I had been taught that, or believe, led to believe that that was it, until I went through the Greek this past week, and the Greek word for the pale horse is uh, chloros, K-H-L-O-R-O-S, chloros, and up to this point, my teaching that it is a gray horse has been incorrect, um, because working through that Greek, that word means mild green or yellow. So uh, chloros, where we get chlorophyll, words that are associated with green. So uh, it's not gray, it's greenish or yellowish. And, but the important part of it is that it's pale green. It's a pale yellow. The way your face might turn if you suddenly are deathly ill, pale green or yellowish. And uh, so, and the, what rides on that pale, palish, green or yellowish horse is death. So, death is described as taking its, doing its job in several ways here with this last horse. It is by sword, it is by hunger, it is by death itself, it repeats, and it is by beasts coming in and finishing the job, it seems. So it seems that the rider is a symbol of all death that followed in after the white horse did its job, the red horse did its job, the black horse did its job, and now we have the final rider, the yellowish horse with death riding on its uh, back, providing death by sword, death by famine, death by other causes, and death by beasts. So the red horse seems to be the most vivid form of death because it's red and it represents war, bloodshed, right? But this death on this fourth horse in this fourth seal, it seems to be a type of death that comes from wasting away, that comes from uh, not a straight up red color violent death, even though sword is mentioned here, but it kind of is denoting the, the ravages of death by calamity, by famine, by uh, w warfare, and these different things due to hunger and injury and disease and animal attack. So we also note that the rider death here is named. The other riders on the first three horses do not have a name. There's a rider, but we don't have no name for them. Uh, and, but this one has a name and his name is death. We also note that this rider does not have any type of implements given to him or her, death. Um, I tend to think death as being a her, just kidding. Uh, but anyway, sword, spear, bow, not given. Given to the other riders, but not given to this one. And hell followed with him. The Greek says rode in partnership with him. So hell, which is the Hades, the covered place, not of the fiery burning place we often think of when we think of hell, which is a misnomer, but hell accompanied this death, okay? So, the covered place. Because hell is still in play here in the book of Revelation in this period of New Testament times, and since hell will be cast into the lake of fire at the coming of the Lord, that's what scripture says, I would say that these events, or the four horsemen that we've already discussed now, have taken place before the coming of the Lord. That's the preterist view. 
that if the coming of the Lord was in 70 AD within a generation, then these events have taken place. In fact, I think we'll see that all uh, seven seals have taken place from the preterist view. However, if you're a futurist, we're waiting for the four horsemen of the apocalypse and the other three seals to be opened up and for all this to fall upon us today. And then the historicist view and the idealist view kind of picture it throughout history in different ways. So power was given unto them, it says, over the fourth part of the earth. Now, some manuscripts say power was given unto him, death, the rider on the pale horse, but most manuscripts say power was given unto them. So it seems like it means power was given unto death and hell. That's the them, because hell rode in partnership with death and was given unto them um, over a fourth part of the earth. Um, now, when it says the earth, the term is Gehei. It does not mean world. It means over the Roman Empire. It means over that area. So again, contextually, it has a fourth part to take the life from the fourth part of the Roman Empire. And that is how I would interpret it, though people would disagree and say, no, it means the whole world. And that's traditionally the, the futurist view. So, uh, to kill with sword, that we get. With hunger, that we get, especially in the history of Josephus and what happened in the uh, days after the uh, Jewish war and the Roman Jewish war before the destruction of Jerusalem, famine. So with sword, with hunger, then it says repeats, and with death, huh? And then with beasts of the earth. So the sword and famine, we get death. The, the term for death is thanatos. And um, let me explain that because it's interesting. So death is riding on the back of this pale horse and hell rides with him to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. If we go to the Old Testament and we look at the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, we see that 50 times pestilence is translated thanatos. So uh, perhaps this is the meaning of this death here, that it's, it would read, and with sword and with hunger and with pestilence and with beasts of the earth. Again, thanatos is translated death in Greek, but in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, any time uh, thanatos, or 50 times that thanatos is used, it's translated pestilence. So we would think that maybe pestilence, sword, hunger, and the beasts of the earth were the things that are taking life. Finally, the wild beasts, and the idea is, as a consequence of the war, the red horse and the black, uh, famine in a depopulated area has resulted, injuries have resulted, there are people who are dying, they're turning green, they're turning yellow, and uh, plagues have fallen upon the land, that's the black horse, and, but not touching the oil or the wine, as I interpret as those who have been blessed by the, have the Holy Spirit and have been covered by the blood of Christ, the angel or the God, whoever tells the horseman, don't, black horse, you can do whatever, but don't touch those 
uh, the oil and the wine. Some people think that's referring literally. I think it's talking about those who have the blood of Christ and the spirit with them as oil is often the emblem of the spirit in scripture. And so uh, these beasts, how the, it seems like dead, dying bodies are laying about and it's a neon invitation for wild beasts in depopulated areas to come in and finish the job. That seems to be what the picture is of, those, uh, of this fourth horse. We can't help but note that in Ezekiel 14, 21, God said, I send my four judgments upon Jerusalem. That's what it says. So if you want a fulfillment of this, this is what it is, in my opinion. The sword, famine, the noisome beast, and pestilence, which is translated thanatos, which is translated to death here in the book of Revelation. So all four of those, of those ways of death are present in the book of Ezekiel, and they are the four judgments upon Jerusalem according to Ezekiel. Now, a futurist says this stuff's gonna fall upon the whole world, you know, and all this, but we're gonna be raptured up beforehand. That's not what Ezekiel says. He says it's gonna fall upon Jerusalem, and that's how I would place the, the opening of these four seals in the time period between Christ and 70 AD. So, before we move on and discuss the fifth seal, and the sixth seal is really interesting because all it does is echo almost everything Jesus said in Matthew 24 about what it will look like at the end. But we have the fifth seal first. Uh, I wanna share with you the thing that kind of came to me and present it to you as I see it. Uh, my mind has been fixated on the black horse for the past few weeks. Uh, no matter what I'm doing, it just keeps coming up. And the fact that in his hand, the King James Version and most other versions translate that the black horse rode through with a set of scales in his hand, right? And we talked about this last week where it's zugos and it's translated a set of balances or scales all through Revelation. Whenever we think of the black horse, we think of the scales. We see pictures drawn of the guy riding the black horse holding the balances or scales. The problem was that word zugos in the New Testament is used six times and never is it translated as scales or balances. It's always translated as a yoke, a yoke. So if we were going to be consistent with translations throughout the scripture and we come to the revelation of the black horse, he would be riding with a yoke in his hand. That's what he would have, not scales. For some reason we decided, because of the context possibly, of the wheat for a penny and the barley for a penny, we came up with scales, or the translators did of the King James. Well, I consulted the new American Standard Greek lexicon, and the term zagos is described in the following ways. First, a yoke. That's its primary use. A yoke that is put on cattle, okay? to balance their workload. A metaphor, this is the second use, to talk about a burden. So I'd say the black horse is riding, he has a burden in his hand, okay? The third one is that of slavery. Troublesome laws, especially the Mosaic law. Uh, hence the name is transferred uh, to my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Peter's saying, you, you wanna put a yoke upon the backs of my people that even our fathers couldn't bear. It's all about a burden. 
And then the final use of it, only used once, and this is in Revelation, is balances or scales. And so it does have that application, but the primary meaning of the word zugos is it's a yoke of a burden. Okay, so I started contemplating. I've never read this or heard this, though I'm sure someone's taught it, but let me go through. First, we're talking about a revelation to a body of believers who primarily were created from Judaism. Okay, we know from Paul's writings that one of the main attacks upon that body of believers, infiltrators and, and criticisms and outside attack was, we want you to re-embrace the law. This is something you need to do. So the things that the horsemen represent have occurred prior to the 78 destruction, and that is my proposal to you, since Jesus describes the end of that age, their world within a generation, and he does this to Peter, James, and John, who says, when's the end of this age? And he describes it. So go back with me quickly and consider in the context of the New Testament epistles. The first horse is Jesus coming on the white horse because that horse is coming to conquer. That's what it says. And white is always emblematic of purity and righteousness. So that horse comes through to conquer, right? And what's he coming to conquer? Sin and death. Remember that now, sin. He is coming to conquer sin and death. The first seal with the uh, first horses opened. And when that happens, when Jesus enters into the scene, guess what follows in right after? Warfare, second horse coming in, red bearing a sword. How, why would there be warfare? Well, from a literal sense, this is when Christians started to be killed. Christ came in to conquer. He comes in to bring in righteousness and warfare is the result. A red horse comes through and people are shed, uh, people's blood is shed. Even Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace, but to bring a sword. So we know that him entering in on the white horse with righteousness also invites the sword of warfare. And if you want to take it in a figurative sense, anytime Christ runs into someone's life to conquer their life, it creates warfare for them. There is a war that begins to go on between our fleshly ways and our spiritual ways. So you can look at it that way. Well, what did it mean when a Jew received Christ Back then in Jerusalem and surrounding areas of Judea, what did it mean to the tenants and the protectors of Judaism? What message did their conversion to Christ tell a Jew? Essentially, it was saying the law of Moses is done. We don't need the law. Uh, and that's what got the Jews all up. We don't need the temple anymore. We don't need the rights and wishes. We don't need the Sabbath day. We don't need the tithes. We don't need all this stuff because we have Christ, right? And so the priesthood is over. Your lineage and your genealogy is over. All this stuff that orbits around the law. So where the Gentile world saw Christianity as just a new form of Judaism, the Greeks thought that Christians were just another way of being a Jew. The Jews did not. The Jews, especially in Jerusalem, were ardently opposed and offended by this upstart bastardization of the 
ancient faith that they had, and the biggest distinction between the Jew and the Christian in their day is the distinction between salvation and freedom and death and bondage. That's the biggest distinction, all present because of the law. All present because of the law, okay? So that's why John wrote, for by the law, was, for the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, all right? It's why Paul, preaching to the Jews in Acts 13, said, be it known unto you, therefore, brethren, through this man, that through this man Jesus is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Okay, so you still with me? There's a major battle going on. The white horse enters in to bring, conquer, purity, righteousness, war engages. Christians are gonna start to be slaughtered, Stephen being the first martyr. And so what rides in next, that's, that's part of that, a, one on a black horse bearing a yoke, bearing the law, trying to bring it back in and impose it upon those people. And this was the battle in almost every epistle that we get past, uh, well, even in Ephesians and Galatians, the epistles are all talking about, don't let the law come back in because that is what brings death. Peter, he, resi uh, he resisted this motion in Acts chapter 15. There were Judaizers who were coming to bring back in the law, whether it's circumcision or whatever. And he said, why do you tempt God to put a yoke? That's that word, zagos. Why do you try to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? So even Peter, he refers to what they were doing as trying to bring the yoke back in. What is the uh, rider on the black horse bearing? A zagos. And only one time is it translated balances and gives us those scales. I don't think it was. I think that black horse rider was carrying the law. They represented the Judaizers who were coming in to say we have to return to the law, whether it's circumcision, Sabbath day, righteousness by what you eat. Paul says in Acts 18, this fellow persuadeth, I mean, they said of Paul, they said, this fellow persuadeth men to worship God contrary to the law. That was the big challenge against the Christian church in this age. So stay with me because I'm gonna give you some passages to help reiterate what was going on between the law and Christianity, all right? In Romans 3.20, it says, and you, I know you're familiar with these passages, but they're really good to hear again. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Did it this morning, talked about the law this morning, the Sabbath day, because it came across in Acts. But look at make a law, you have sin. Get rid of the law, sin is gone. 55 mile an hour posted on the highway, out on the 15. 55 is posted, the law is posted, you have to obey that, you break it, you're a lawbreaker. No sign posted anywhere, go off 300 miles an hour. My Hyundai, my, my Prius will do that. 300 miles an hour, and you are a lawbreaker because there is no law, okay? Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is so clear. This black horse was coming in and it was bringing that yoke. 
that yoke to place upon people's back. Romans 4, 14, for if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void. Okay, if you're of the law and you're an heir to God because of your obedience to the law, faith is erased. Don't even need it. That's Romans 4, 14. And the promises of none effect, you ready? Because the law works wrath. Where there no law is, there is no transgression. Make a law, you make transgression. And so this was the thing that they were fighting against. Romans 5, 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Sin is not put upon us where there is no law. So the example gave it this morning, sorry for the reiteration. We make a law here. We have one rule and only one rule, and that is you must wear socks to campus. You have to wear socks to campus. We don't have any other rules. You can come in drunk high. You can come in with your girlfriend, your adulterous lover. You can do anything you want, but you can't wear socks. This is the law we have. Guess what we humans will do? We will start saying, well, I'm wearing socks, so I am a little bit better than, he's not wearing socks. And we start to then judge and we start to then get angry and we start to think of ourselves superior. The law kills the spirit. Paul makes that clear. The letter kills as soon as you introduce it. Well, it makes sense that this black horse is putting the law, trying to put the law on other people. Wherefore, Romans 7, 4, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ. You know, people think you're radical when you say there's, we are dead to it. We are dead to it by the body of Christ. Romans 7, 5 says, for when we were in the flesh, the passion of sins, which are by the law, did work in fleshly members to bring forth fruit unto death. Remember that passage, that the law working in our fleshly members, its fruit is death. That's what that passage says, okay? And now ask yourself, what's the last horse to ride in of the four horses? It's death, okay? So when that third horse comes in bearing, that black horse bears that yoke and tries to put it on, the end result is death in that period of time prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. But now we are delivered from the law, being dead wherein we were held. We're dead to it, you guys, that we serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The letters kill. The letters are scribal laws. Even our own Bibles become laws that we use against each other to fight and kill and minister with the Spirit is written upon our heart, love of God. We use the letters to help us understand and learn, etc. but it is not the law by which we go by, no matter what people say. For without the law, Romans 7, 8, sin is dead. No law, no sin. Romans 7, 9, for I was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. That's Paul, after he had been a Christian. Romans 7, 22, 25, for I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my flesh warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my flesh. And then he concludes with that great line we all know, oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? 
And then he concludes, I thank God through Jesus Christ the Lord. Listen to his summation. So then, with my mind, I serve the law of God, which is love and faith, with my mind. But with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. Meaning when we embrace the law, our flesh is just roiling in sin because that's what it produces. Romans 8, 2, 3, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Paul says, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Let me read it again. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Remember the presence of the law brings sin? The black rider's holding a yoke. It's the law. It brings sin. What's the next horse that follows? Death. Sin and death. These are the last two, uh, two horse riders come in. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Romans 10, four, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the sting of death is sin. Ready? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death, which is coming upon these people, according to the fourth seal, riding on a palish horse, that's the sting of death. That is the strength is because of sin and the strength of sin is the law, the, the, the yoke being uh, bore by the rider on the black horse beforehand. Galatians 2.16 says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith of Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Well, the Jews are sitting there. They're saying, we've rejected our Messiah. We are going to trust in the law. And guess what? We're going to try to make the Christian converts believe in the law, inner black horse. And guess what the end result was, was for them. One million plus killed, wiped out by death by this fourth horse as it enters in. For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live to God. Galatians 2, 21, I do not frustrate the grace of God for if righteousness comes by the law, Christ died in vain. Woohoo! you got that one? If righteousness could come by the law, Christ died in vain. That is so heavy for people who don't understand because how could Christ die in vain I mean, he certainly didn't die in vain. Therefore, righteousness cannot come by the law. I wish my LDS uh, family and friends understood these passages because all the law is is a yoke, just like it's translated in six, five of the six times in Scripture. It's a yoke. God, he says in Galatians 3.10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed, is everyone that continues not in all things that are written in the book of the law and do them. So you live by the law, you're under a curse, Paul makes it plain. Because that curse is, I'm living by the law, you have to do everything under the law in order to be seen as righteous. You can't do it, so therefore you're cursed. That's the thinking. Galatians 3.11, but no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident the just shall live by faith. Big difference. 
Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3.13. 3.21, is the law then against the promises of God? Listen to this. Is the law then against the promises of God, the promises God wants? Paul says, God forbid. But he adds, for if there had been a law given that could give life, righteousness should have been by the law, but it never could. Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster talking to uh, Jews to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 4, 4 through 5, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 5, 4, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law. Got that? Christ is no effect to you if you are justified uh, by the law. He adds, you are fallen from grace. That's, this is frightening. These are frightening passages because the, if people believe they are going to die and enter into God's realm and be like, well, here, unroll the scroll. This is what I, these are the things I obeyed. And it's trampling underfoot the shed blood of the son, according to Hebrews, trampling it straight underfoot. Galatians 5.18, but if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Philippians 3.9, be found in him, not having my own righteousness, Paul says, which is of the law, my own righteousness, which is of the law. Oh, I got to say it again. My own righteousness, which is of the law. I obeyed this. I obeyed that. I obeyed this. That's of the, your own flesh. That's your righteousness. But that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness, which is of God by faith. It goes all the way back to Abraham. By his faith, he was justified before God. Titus 3.9 says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law. They're unprofitable and vain. Don't even, don't even give it any attention. Hebrews 7.9, the law made nothing perfect. But the bringing of a better hope did, by which we draw nigh unto God, that better hope being Christ Jesus. James 2.10, for whosoever shall keep the whole law yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. You want to go before God and not be guilty of failing to obey the law? Live by faith. Trust in his son. Go before God and, you know, theoretically say, my only hope. I remember hearing a, 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 a sermon from a guy named Vernon McGee years ago while I was still Mormon. And Vernon McGee said, we have two people. He has a southern accent. We have two people who are going to die and go before God, me and my neighbor. And my neighbor believes he's living a righteous life. And so we're going to go before God. And my neighbor's going to say why well, I obeyed the Sabbath and I paid my tithes and I wore a tithe and I didn't commit adultery and I did this and I did that and I did this. It's going to be my turn. And I'm going to say, I got nothing. I have nothing to offer you, Lord. All I have is I trusted in you and the work you did. I'm at your mercy. I have no, my works are but filthy rags. And I heard that, man, it went into my brain. That made some sense. How could the goodness that we do under the law make us right before him when we fail at it constantly? First John 3, whosoever committeth sin transgresses the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So, unquestionably, the law being abolished was incomprehensible to the Jews. They could not fathom this grace deal. 
This Jesus deal was a complete stumbling block to them. They were marching toward their own righteousness and boom, hit Jesus right over on their face because they couldn't get it. So therefore they were constantly trying to reassert the law in the lives of people who were still Jews by nationality, but had converted to Christ. They did not realize, here's the key, that by clinging to the law, Jesus had come, his apostles had gone and preached grace, preached him, crucified Messiah. By clinging to the law, it lent to the death of millions. That's what the law does. It leads to the death of people. This is why Paul clearly states, for when we were in the flesh, the passions of our sins, which are by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. Okay? It's why we read in Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The Jews pre-70 AD who did not receive Christ were under the law of sin and death. And it was coming their way. And the apostles were saying, get ready. You have to receive your Messiah who saves you by by grace through your faith. They said, no, we will cling to the temple that is still standing, by the way. Your Savior said it wasn't going to fall. Look at it. It's still there. We're still here. We still have our priests and our our priesthood, our genealogies. And you are telling us that we need to turn before we get wiped out right. Well, guess what? These four seals are describing the exact process that they went through. And it's why 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. So to the point, Jesus rode in on the white horse first seal to conquer sin and death. This created a war. The red horse seal is broken. The red horse comes in. The Jews against him, against his grace, brought in warfare. Christians were put to death. First one, Stephen, James after, many after, we don't know their names. What rode in next? The black horse. You think that's the color of death. That's not the color of death. That's the color of sin. That's the color of sin. Pale horse is the color of death. The black horse is the color of the yoke. He's bearing the law. That's death, right? And the rider hand is the law which they sought to impose upon all Christian, uh, Jewish Christian converts. And the result of this, the final horse, the pale green yellow horse, uh, which is the result of the Jews clinging to the law instead of turning to Jesus and living, they were wiped out through famine, through pestilence, through the sword. And then finally by animals, according to Josephus, came in and chewed and gnawed upon the dead bodies laying in the streets. That is the fulfillment of the first four seals in my estimation. Seal five, six, and seven fall right in harmony with this. It's it's just been amazing to study this. I'm really grateful that Wendy pushed to to, uh, study it. I didn't want to do it, but I've learned so much about what is, it's plainly laid out there if you just look at what scripture says. So the result of the Jews clinging to the law, rejecting the Messiah of grace and truth was death and hell rode alongside with it. What was hell? That's Hades, and that was the covered place. That's where they all went. They went to the covered place. 
were right along side by side, and those two, death and hell, had their victory. So that's how I see the first four horsemen. Let's read the next seal and see if its content are consistent with this view that I've shared with you today. And then we'll wrap it up. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given to every one of them, and it is said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren should be killed as they were, and it should be fulfilled. So this is a truly intriguing uh, insight now to this fifth seal. What's going on here? Remember the first four. In the face of those four horsemen introduced to the world, uh, conquering through Christ, war, um, uh, sin by the law, and death, Christians are being martyred for their faith and trust. And that's why I said Stephen was the first. I don't know if James was the second, but James was one of them really quickly. So it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, we don't know what altar that is, by the way. There's no altar in this vision. There's a throne, but there's no altar. Of the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And at this point, the four living creatures, we notice, are stopped participating. There's no more calling to John saying, come and see, come and see. They're done with their role in the opening of the seven seals. To me, they have served their purpose, as have the four colored horses. We know what they have represented thus far. In other words, the ball is rolling forward with the four horsemen setting the stage. In this, I see what the horsemen have introduced as uh, a theme of things rather than a chronology of events. In other words, there's overlap going on with all of this. We just don't say, okay, this happened, stop. Now this happened. There's overflow with all of it, as there is almost in everything in Scripture. And because recapitulation is so big in the book of Revelation, chronology can get difficult. But the themes seem to have been set. To me, Christ, when I say that, uh, in the historic and the idealist view, Christ is always riding forward to conquer. And warfare always follows. The law is constantly challenging us personally for us to re-embrace it. And religion might constantly tell us to re-embrace the law. So that black horse is doing its deal. And then finally, death will follow uh, to those who don't know Christ by uh, his spirit and by grace. So those are the themes the four horsemen have introduced. So with those themes kind of set in your mind, especially to that age, literally, I believe they were literally happening to them. John is now introduced to the fifth seal which speaks to the martyrdom of believers, saints, who have been true to the faith, to the word of God and for their testimony. And just so we can remain clear, I believe that the opening of these first five seals have already occurred. They were going to shortly occur in John's life or they would occur shortly after John's life. That is how I would see it. Of course, you know the other views and how they see it. So, First seal, sorry for the reiteration, Christ riding in righteousness. Second seal, warfare over the good news. Third seal, the imposition of law. Uh, 
but those who uh, the wine and oil is not touched. And then the fourth seal is death. Now the fifth seal speaks to the martyrs in the faith during that time, Stephen, James, and all those of whom were unaware, who have been killed for their faith in Christ. 67 AD marks the high point of Christian deaths. They were at a peak uh, under the reign of uh, the Romans and the Jews at hand. Verse nine and 11 describes 10 facts about these martyrs that were under the altar that John saw. First, he opens the fifth seal, they're under the altar, They were slain for the word of God and for the testimony that they held. This was the reason for their death. They are crying with a loud voice. This is a heavenly vision. And these souls are crying with a loud voice. And what are they saying? How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Now they were doing this back in John's day. And they're crying, how long will it be? To a futurist, we're still saying, you're still waiting, buddy. You know, that does not make any sense. They were crying for vengeance, not vengeance. They were crying for justice at this point in the game. And white robes were given to every one of them. And it was said unto them, we don't know who said it, that they should rest for a little season. That's, uh, uh, micron is the word. Very short time, rest. Until their fellow servants, not the fellow servants you'll have out in 2,000 years till your fellow servants will also be killed and your brethren, your brethren and fellow servants are killed. And, then that, and when that's fulfilled, that's how long you're going to rest. So the location of the souls under the altar, altars in scripture are always emblematic of places for sacrifice. And so they're under the altar. They have been sacrificed. They are done with, they're, they're below the altar. They have given their lives for their testimony, for their faith in the word of God. Uh, were these the only souls of the slain that are being mentioned prior to the wrapping up of Jerusalem? Or did those souls include people who were martyred in the 18th century? We don't know. But we know for certain that chronologically, John was seeing those who had been slain and he was living in real time and space when he saw it. And they were crying out, when will you have uh, bring justice upon our brethren, uh, I mean, those people who killed us on the earth? So we have a real time thing going on here, not something that extends way out. Nevertheless, if this vision is only covering those slain in the early church, um, it seems to be these are they who fell under the red horse. These are the ones whose blood was shed by the red horse sword. Okay, we learned something else from this passage. Listen to this, think about this. We come up with so many knee-jerk responses to this stuff, but listen to what scripture tells us. These souls, which the Greeks define suke as mind, will, and emotion, their mind, will, and emotion was under the altar. They have sacrificed their life. They have been martyred, right? They existed beyond physical death. They're dead, but they're there and they're talking. They're crying to God, okay? They had a voice so much so that they could cry. So people say, well, when you die, you go into soul sleep. Right here, we learn from John that the martyrs were under the altar crying to God from that place, saying, when will you give us justice? So we say, no, there's no this, there's no that, there's no knowledge. We say there's no knowledge of things on earth. These guys are waiting for justice to be meted out and they know whether it has happened or not. So there is something open between people who pass on and what goes on in this earth as evidenced by this scripture. 
A lot of people say, no, 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 no. But they say, we'll have no idea what's going on here. I think that's just us making stuff up. Scripture tells us that these did. They were not asleep. And this occurred before the resurrection of the dead. So remember that these are not resurrected souls. These are souls that were slain for their faith. They also appeared to be interested in what was happening at that time and were apparently engaged in loud cries, prayers to God on their behalf saying, when are you going to avenge our blood? That's radical stuff. Do, do the departed who were uh, taken out of this world unjustly, is, is that something that they do? Is that, do they cry out to God, avenge our blood, avenge our blood? You know, it's, it's really interesting. How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? That's heavenly beings asking God about his actions on people here. Now, there's a built-in implication that they expected God to do this. They're just saying, how long will it be? Perhaps they felt that God was being slow to inter intervene, or, and, and that's interesting that they're in heaven, they're in the altar, they're, they're, they're gonna be given white robes and everything, but they're actually talking to God and saying, when can this happen? I just find that fascinating. What else do we learn that's interesting? For, for, they seem to be aware of passing of time. In heaven, there is no time, there's no space of time, space continuum doesn't exist. They knew, hey, how long do we have to wait? So I don't know, when people start talking out that gibberish about time space, I don't know about that because that's not what this story seemed to tell us in scripture. And their query to God is how long, meaning they understood that a certain amount of time had passed. We also learned that they were troubled by the fact that their lives had been taken and they wanted justice. That they, you notice that they didn't say, oh Lord, forgive them that sheddeth our blood. They don't say that. They say, how long will it be before you impose justice upon them? This is in the Christian era. These are Christians who were martyred for their faith and testimony. So they're followers of Christ and they're asking for justice. Now we might think, well, you know, you gotta forgive and everything else. And, and we do when we're on this earth. But somehow these souls seem to understand that God is the type that will vindicate all things, especially things from unrepentant souls who murder or do whatever. This is really insightful. I mean, since he is being appealed to as a God of their own words of holiness and truth, perfect justice must be part of his existence. Being in his realm, they understood that. And so they appealed to it. We want justice, right? And therefore, the idea that people get away with unrepented criminal behaviors because God is so good is really a misnomer when we consider this story. Because if that were the case, they would be dead under the altar and being like, we're all good, God, we're with you. Don't worry about it. Forgive them, bring them in. That wasn't the, the tenor of the discussion. And... In the face of this, we might do well to remind ourselves of the severity of God uh, that scripture talks about. Yes, he loved us so much, he gave us his only begotten son. But those who commit evil 
without a care, apparent from scripture, especially against those who are his, but it might be against everybody. It seems that equitable retribution awaits uh, as evidenced by the cries that these martyred souls are, are offering up. We might suppose that it wasn't vengeance or revenge, but it's just justice. Justice is a holy principle and justice would be met by a holy God. God's justice is found in the perfection of his nature. That's forgotten by many in the world. It's not a optional product of his will. He doesn't say, well, I'll be just with this one, but I'll be merciful with this one. He is going to be just. The interesting question is, what makes something justifiable and what makes something um, in due of punishment uh, in God's eyes? And it has to be the shed blood of his son believed upon truly from the heart because he is just. He doesn't act justly. It's, it's his person. Of Psalms 89, 14 says, justice and judgment are the habitation of your throne. Justice and judgment. I mean, that's frightening if you think about it and believe it. Part of justice is rewarding those who deserve it and part of justice is punishing those who don't. And so he's given us the way we would deserve reward or absolution for our crimes. And he's given us the, that, and he said, there's no other way to get around this. So the question then becomes, how does he determine who is deserving of what? In this, I think we can rest assured, he is capable, not capable, he is perfect administration of perfect justice in terms of rewards and punishments. He absolutely, there's no equivocation because it's all set in his being, right? So it can be really frightening and it can be reassuring. Second Timothy makes it clear, God cannot deny himself is what it says. Well, if himself is love and holiness and purity and goodness and mercy and justice, then he cannot deny what he is in the way he relates. No matter how merciful and loving he is, Justice has to play as big a part. And so it seems these souls under the altar were aware of that and they are crying up to God saying, when? Uh, justice still exists because these were believers in Christ Jesus who followed him and his teachings of forgiving and etc. But justice continues in their minds as being needed. And white robes were given to every one of them, naturally. The white robe, like the white horse, righteousness, purity, was given to every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season. Remember that phrase right there in Revelation given to John to the seven churches. Rest, you souls, under the altar who have been martyred for a little season, okay? Until your fellow servants also and your brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Wait just a little bit longer. You have some other... Uh, people in the faith have got to be killed too. And this seems to indicate that they were assigned to martyrdom. God knew they haven't been martyred yet. Hang on and wait. So until those martyrdoms were being carried out, there's a white robe, relax. Uh, and um, We know that according to this vision of John's at this certain place in time, if you will, that more retribution was going to take place. These people martyred at the hands of the Jews were calling for justice. 
and we are looking forward to that time. How long will they have to wait, these souls under the altar? Any futurist would say they're still waiting. But I want to turn to you to the Greek. The phrase is, rest ye for a little season until your fellow servants and brethren should be killed as you were, and then it will be fulfilled. Rest for a little season is mikros chronos. And in the Greek, that means very, mikros, little time. Mikros chronos, a little season, mikros chronos, until your fellow servants are killed and your brother, your brother like you were, and then it will come. I'm convinced that this language speaks to that day that age which wrapped up the destruction of Jerusalem, given to the seven churches. John has seen what is about to happen as it has repeated itself eight times thus far, and uh, which righteousness and reward and judgment is going to fall upon the nation of Israel as promised. Questions, commentos. Wait for the... Micron, Kronos. Carlos, more volume, ladies. Good. Uh, as far as what you were talking about with, uh, with sin and the law, I understand how that applies to us, but do we have an answer for between Adam and Moses, the, the punishments that were dealt out in that time? Actually, uh, Adam to Moses, it's, uh, uh, Paul talks about him winking at them during that time mm-hmm. and, and giving them a pass, actually, because they had no law, but they did have the presence of conscience upon them to know right and wrong. Mm-hmm. But God gave them a grace period until the law was established. And actually, from Adam to Moses, I'm pretty sure that's what Paul says. So it's a good, good question. Anything else? Steve Waugh. So I was thinking um, when uh, the martyrs were calling for justice and stuff, uh, at that time, I think, uh, since it was before, you know, before God dealt his judgment, it would have been physical but now since we're after that oh. period, it'd be uh, spiritual. Oh. So it'd be in the lake of fire instead of physical. Ah, makes sense. So justice is still prevailed, but in the spiritual sense. Yep. It yeah. makes such perfect sense That's to me in light of, of Hebrews and saying all things that are shakable have been shaken. And the only thing that remains which is not shakable would be the spiritual. Mm-hmm. And so justice is still meted out, but in the lake of fire, that makes sense. I love that. Anything else? Oh, good. Two questions over there at the side. We rarely have comments on that end. Tilt the room. Fight it out, man. That's how we do it here at campus. My name is Derek. Hello, Derek. (laughs) Oh, and my page just went away. In Revelations uh, 21.4. Jumping way out there. Oh, really? I can't believe. Hold on. Go Go to the next person. Sorry. Um, Can able to answer the question about God's justice? God meted out justice in the situation with Cain and Abel. And then could you tie together the yoke and the amount of money required to purchase wheat? Oh, you barley? mean with the penny for a, we covered that last week. Okay. 
Um, would the yoke represent the labor and how little you get for it? I don't know. <coughs> I haven't thought of that, Phil, and that's a good question. How does the penny for barley, a penny for wheat, work on that yoke? But it does seem, that's why it does seem like the commentators and the translators of the King James called it balances because it seemed like that penny weighed for that, for that wheat. But uh, I have to think about that. Go ahead. Do you have an it, insight? It seems like a reference to the great amount of work that goes into buy a tiny little bit of wheat or barley and yeah. that's how much you get out of the law if you're the logic with the yoke I is to follow because the roman denarius was a full one which was called the penny was a yeah. full day's labor right so that's great great insight uh derek did you find your reference <laughs> i did um so it's revelation 21 4 and so i want to know who john is speaking of here and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things have passed away. Yeah, I think he's talking to every, I think that's for everything from here on out, from that point forward. Would that be us. considered heaven? Yeah. Because my, my thought always was in heaven when, um, I, I guess I don't believe that people watch down oh my mother doesn't watch down over me from heaven because the lord promised no sorrow and if she saw what was going on still today on this earth or in my life that would be sorrowful i see so when you were saying that um they were wailing out about justice maybe that's because they hadn't been in heaven yet um could be um could be. I've just always felt that when people say they're looking down on you, the, the, the only other thing I tried to rationalize with that was, well, they can only see the good that happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they only see the good that happens, but I just don't think that they know, the people that have passed before us, uh, see what's going on in earth right now because that would be sorrowful. Yeah. The way I might uh, respond to that from the preterist view is that Jesus has not come and brought justice upon the nation of Israel who had put them to death. And maybe after that was complete and justice had been meted out to them, because that's what the whole narrative is about. To us, yes. you may be right. The people that were wailing? Yeah. Yes, that's, that's yeah. why I was trying to justify it was that it was 67 AD and yeah. he had not come down and uh, taken judgment yeah. to the earth. Okay. That's a great, great insight and makes more sense because I'm fearful my deceased are looking at me in my bedroom with my wife sometimes. <laughs> well, I don't think about that so much as when we go through rough times in this life, I'm sure they don't want to see what our children go through, our grandchildren. All of that. I just think of it selfishly. <laughs> okay. You know? Great stuff. Thanks for putting up with me, guys. Uh, one victory. Oh, we have more? Yes. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Take your name. Uh, I'm Aaron. Thank you. Um, one quick thing, uh, Romans 4, I think, uh, explains that Abraham was justified by faith. Mm -hmm. uh, but my question is, uh, if we're taking the view that um, these seven seals have already happened, is that right? Um, can you explain or, or point to uh, like every mountain and island moved out of their place in 14 yeah. or that the great David's wrath has come in 17? I can. Come the next three weeks and you will get all of the explanations. Can I get a teaser? Uh, no. I'm on it, but I, it takes a tremendous amount of 
trying to make sure I cover the ground before I say it, unlike other comments I make. So I want to make sure all my ducks are in order. And But uh, if you tune in, you'll see the answer to that, Aaron, from the... Okay, cool. Oh, one final parting question. Uh, 12, the sun became black, a sackcloth, sun and moon being... All the same. Sun and moon being darkened, isn't that well, immediately... all of it. Preceded, okay. Yeah, answer all of it. That's a good question. Uh, really good question. But I promise you we'll answer it. Uh, a oh, another one, Stephen? One more up here. Open forum. Just super quick. I uh, looked where Derek was talking about um, in chapter er, chapter 21. And I guess at the end of that, or that paragraph in 8, when it's talking about the uh, new heaven and new earth, it says that um, those who commit sins will be judged in the lake of fire. So it just oh. confirms what we were just talking okay. about. Okay, so, awesome. Yeah, That's the lake evidence. of fire reference. Yep. We, uh, we trust in the living God for all things. And uh, I was talking with people this morning and how Kathy, she was talking saying, you know, we pray to God that his will be done and we will understand his will. And sometimes that looks wonderful to us and sometimes it looks sad. But as people who walk by faith, we pray, we trust in what he does and we move on in faith. So on the backside here, we, uh, remember we have a picture of Heidi. We prayed for Heidi for years uh, with her uh, stage four cancer and Heidi was taken. That was the Lord's will. There was, we prayed, we did everything, uh, you know, in faith, taken. Uh, and we accept that. That was what his will was. But at the same time, we've also prayed for Dawn. And Dawn Faber here uh, is here with us today. She has beaten stage four cancer. She's right here. And so uh, it's God and it's what he's doing. We give him the praise and the glory in both circumstances. And I'm just grateful to be able to participate and watch these things happen in our lives and see how God uh, works. So I just wanted to point that out. As we pray for these people, so I'm looking at this list, that we trust that his hand will be work right in whatever is necessary. So we praise him. Let's pray. I'm really sorry. I cannot read this first thing. All I see is child killing. Um, cannot read it. I'm sorry. Uh, so whoever put it on there, pray yourself for that thing, and we'll, let's go. Lord, we do recognize you and know you are sovereign and you are omnipotent and you do oversee. You know when a sparrow falls uh, to the earth and you know the, hair, the count of the hairs of our head and where we are in our lives and what you want us to be doing and used for. To some, you uh, take life. To some, you give life. And we praise you either way, in bounty and in blessing and, and, in, and in what seems to be like loss. So we thank you and we lift up names before you because that's what we're told to do. And, we, and, and help us to accept your will in whatever it is. And, uh, but we are so grateful that Dawn is here with us. And you've blessed her and given her extended years and life with Phil and all her family and grandchildren. And we pray that you will watch over the Fabers. We pray that you will watch over uh, the Wangs guards. And uh, as they mourn the, the physical loss of their mom and wife and sister and daughter, but that uh, they will walk in faith as we all do, realizing that they will be with her again. We pray for Joe Franson's health issues that they will be resolved soon. Bernice and her health and recovery from pneumonia and her health issues. For Diana and the operations that are coming up and the ailments in her life, her body's racked with 
problems and we just pray that you'll give her comfort and peace and help her through this journey. Continued health for all those who have struggled with their health, physical, psychological, emotional. Help those people who are struggling financially that you will step in, make yourself known and uh, give them opportunities for employment that will keep them uh, viable uh, financially in this world. Help people who are struggling with loneliness and who don't have friends and uh, who can't relate to society. We pray that you'll equip them and give them friends and, and help all those who are having crises of faith, who aren't sure who you are, what you are, even if you exist, that you will put them in our path this week and we can be used by you to reach somebody with the good news and we can share the great light that we have in our lives because of you. Uh, we love you and we worship you. We thank you deeply. Thank you for all you've given us. And we just pray that we will continue to be in your will as we move forward now. In Jesus' name, amen. Therefore.